0: Now, I don't know if you've, you see it when you look at this text, but it kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? It's a little bit of a shock to the system when you read this particular text. I mean, you've got John the Baptist here. Now, what do we know about John the Baptist? Jesus said, John the Baptist was, up to this point, the greatest man ever born of a woman. And here is John the Baptist sending his disciples to Jesus with this question. Look at it again in verse 3. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Now what kind of question is that? This is the same John who leaped in his mother's womb when Mary came to visit her. This is the same John who openly announced to everyone around him in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that Jesus, this Jesus, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The same John to whom the Lord himself said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the same John who made it clear in John 1.32, I have seen and bore witness that this Jesus is the Son of God. John 131 and in 132 he goes on and said I saw I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him John baptized Jesus John even encouraged some of his own disciples to leave him and go and walk with Jesus Andrew being one of the being one of them Andrew Peter's brother And yet, and yet, even with all of this, John the Baptist on this occasion sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him this rather stunning question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Why? Why did John send his disciples to Jesus with this question? Well... It all boils down to one word, a word we tend to shy away from a little bit, a dirty little five-letter word, doubt. John the Baptist, the man who Jesus referred to again as the greatest man ever born of a woman up to that point, this man, John the Baptist, suffered at this moment in his life, at this period in his life. With doubt, and Jude, writing to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, in Jude verse one. In other words, writing to fellow believers, exhorted those to whom he wrote, and exhorted by extension us as well to, in Jude verse twenty-two, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Now, I want to be clear about what we are talking about here. We are not talking about full-on unbelief in Jesus. We're not talking about rejection of the Lord or a full-on walking away from your profession of faith. That's just patent unbelief. Both are terrible sins. That is a terrible sin, and Scripture speaks to it in the clearest and most terrifying of terms. For those who once professed faith in Jesus and later abandoned or disavow that faith that they professed, Jesus said in Matthew 10, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and for Gomorrah than it will be for you. And the writer of the letter to the Hebrews also makes it clear in chapter 10 that my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, meaning if he abandons his profession... My soul has no pleasure in him. And therefore, the writer of the Hebrews exhorts his readers, saying this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So uh, unbelief in this context here is rejection and rebellion and walking away from your profession of faith. But doubt, doubt is different. As John the Baptist and many other faithful believers throughout scripture and into christian history have wrestled with this subject doubt is not disbelieving jesus doubt is from a perspective of faith like i believe i believe in jesus but i have all of these questions that i can't seem to figure out i have all of these questions that i can't understand the answers to i lack certainty in so many areas of faith and i don't know how to figure them out It's not a lack of faith, it's a time of uncertainty, it's a time of weak faith. You see, faith is complete trust in and confidence in someone or something. So when you doubt, that means you are losing a little bit of that confidence and losing some of that trust in someone or something. And the doubt expressed by John here is one of a man struggling through uncertainties in his own faith. Because he is one who is now languishing in one of Herod's brutal prison cells. And he hears some some news about the deeds of Jesus Christ that don't quite line up with his expectations for Messiah. And so he has some questions and some uncertainties and some doubts that he needs some answers to and clarification of. And if you look... As Jude exhorted believers to have mercy on those who doubt, what was Jude doing? He was simply looking back to the great model of mercy, Jesus Christ, and showing us what Jesus did with those who doubted. Jesus exhibited mercy on John here in, John 1, of, in one of John's weaker moments, when John lacked certainty. Can you identify with John? Can you identify with the doubter that Jude is referring to here? Do you ever in your life as a believer, in your life as a Christian, wrestle with periods and with seasons of doubt and uncertainty in your belief? Are you one with all sorts of questions and all sorts of quandaries for which you have no answer? Are you one who's desperate to find greater insight into some of the difficulties that you are experiencing in your faith? Well, that is you. If that is you, this is who the text refers to this morning. Doubt in this context refers to those who are asking the tough questions and voicing out loud their uncertainties and their difficulties with this faith that they profess. And I'll tell you, as you go through these seasons and as you go through these periods, it can lead to great discouragement in your life. It can lead to great despair in your life. As you question your own faith, you question your own salvation, and you do so, however, from the perspective as one who, in weak faith, still has some belief It's like the plea of the desperate father in Mark chapter 9, right? Urgent in his appeal to see his son healed, he goes up to Jesus and he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief! that's the doubt we are exploring this morning. It's the one that by faith, arising from faith, even if and when that faith is shaken, that seeks answers, that seeks clarity, that seeks deeper understanding about the things that are troubling us. It's about rattling the cages of our faith in Jesus to get the answers to fall out of those cages. And you might be asking all sorts of questions this morning. I can't get to them all, But you may have a whole bunch of dilemmas going on in your mind that are causing you despair and doubt. It might be that you have questions this morning about personal suffering in your own life. Things that you're enduring or traumas that you've been subjected to in the past. You might wonder, how is it that a supposedly loving God would either allow or permit or actively put me through such difficult and tragic circumstances? How is it that the God who is love, according to the Bible, can let me face what I've faced in the past or let me walk through the difficulties that I am walking through right now? We're only human We can only take so much. What is God doing in my life and why? I want answers. I need answers. I believe. Help my unbelief. You might have questions about what you see from other professing Christians. You might wonder why, as you look at everyone around you, why are they all so happy? Why do they all seem so put together while you are an absolute train wreck? Emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. You might wonder why everyone around you seems so stable, but you are barely holding on. What does that say about my faith, you might ask? And you begin to doubt your own faith in the Lord. What does that say about God's love or lack of love for me? I need answers. Help my unbelief. You might wonder why it is that you don't feel God in your life. Why you don't feel God in your heart. You don't possess any sort of emotional connection to Him. And so your Bible reading and your Christian life and your obedience just seem like one long and lonely season of rituals. Sure, I read my Bible, but I don't feel God. Sure, I pray, but it doesn't feel like anyone is listening to me. feels like my words go up to the ceiling, they bump off the ceiling, and they fall right back down in front of me. Sure, I go to church, but it all seems so dry, and it all seems so empty. I need answers. I believe. Help my unbelief. You might be looking out at the world at the way that even those who say they love Christ are treating each other right now and wondering how can it be if God is real and the Holy Spirit is real how can it be that those who say they love Christ those who say that they have the Holy Spirit living in them can be so selfish and so self-centered and so unconcerned about their fellow believers around them. How can we look so much like the world when we say we have the Holy Spirit in us? How can we claim to be the people of Jesus when we look nothing like Jesus? Lord, I see this. I believe. Help my unbelief. You might wonder how it is that God is all-powerful God is loving and just, and yet the wicked seem to control believers of power in this world. You might wonder how it is that evil can so pervade every level of existence in this life that you are living in the here and now. Why does it seem like evil prospers while the righteous and the good and the godly are struck down and destroyed? Why is it that good people are stricken with health trials like cancer and Alzheimer's? Why is it that large swaths of seemingly innocent people all across the world die, starve to death or die of tragic consequences from a natural disaster? Why is it that the Lord allowed my loved one to die? I believe, help my unbelief. It might be that you're having intellectual doubts. The world is contradicting the word of God and scientists and historians are out there pressing their theories about all sorts of things. The origins of creation and mankind. Theories that don't line up with what scripture says. They say X and the Bible says Y. And what am I to do with all of this? What am I to do when culture presses in and tells me that certain lifestyle choices that I see in scripture are wrong, that I see in script that scripture condemns, consistently press in that they're okay, they're right? When I'm constantly being told I'm on the wrong side of history, what am I to do with all of this? I need answers. I believe help my unbelief. And we could go on and on, right? I haven't touched or scratched the surface of the questions that might be asked here by all of you this morning. What am I to do with all of this? And if this is you, if you are one who bears this heavy weight of doubt in your life from time to time, from season to season, if you are one who is bearing this heavy weight of doubt even right now, I want you to know something, you're not alone. You are not alone. A few years back, the Barna Research Group did a survey on this very subject of doubt and they went and asked professing believers if they ever grapple with fits and seasons of doubt. And a whopping 66% of believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ said, yes, I struggle with seasons and periods of doubt. And I would suggest to you that the other 34%, they're just lying. Scripture also records a number of people. So if you're sitting here thinking, it's just me. Scripture records a number of people who endured periods of doubt, who were struck with moments and intervals of doubt. And while we might find, while we might, as we read John the Baptist's doubt here and discouragement, we might find it a little startling because we are prone to hide our doubts and conceal our doubts and not talk to anyone about our doubts. For the Jews to whom Matthew wrote, they understood that John was simply experiencing the same difficulties that every one of God's prophets have faced in the history of In salvation history, I don't know if you see it, but in the Psalms, David, we've been doing the Psalms for uh, our Wednesday groups, and over and over and over and over again, you can see in David's Psalms that he begins his Psalms with a period of uncertainty. Lord, are you going to help me or not? Are you going to answer my prayers or not? Are you going to hear my cries or not? And about halfway through, something happens, something occurs, and David gets some sort of joy in the Lord. He gets some sort of answer, right? Psalm 143, you can see it. Psalm 143, verse 1, David said, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. And listen to this, therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. David is experience, uh, experiencing a, deep, a season of deep uncertainty. Answer me quickly, Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. David endured many seasons like this. Moses endured seasons like this. Abraham endured seasons like this. The disciples of Jesus Christ endured seasons like this. One of the ones that impacts me most is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was struck with such a level of doubt and uncertainty that he said one of the most shocking things to the Lord in all of Scripture. You see, in the beginning of Jeremiah's prophecy, the Lord said to him, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah 1.10. Now, if you're Jeremiah, what are you thinking? You have an expectation as to what that means. The Lord is with me. I am going to see nations fall down by my side and Israel will be brought high. But instead, the very opposite thing that Jeremiah expected to occur came to pass. And the nation that was overthrown, the nation that was broke down, Was Jeremiah's very own nation. And so Jeremiah in chapter 20, verse 7, looked up to the Lord and said, This, O Lord, you have deceived me. O Lord, you have deceived me. Can you imagine that level of doubt and uncertainty where you can say, You have deceived me, Lord? And I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. And it's not just Jeremiah. It's not just Abraham and David and the disciples, but Elijah as well. You remember Elijah's story. One of the greatest and most courageous prophets of the Lord... To the wicked and rebellious nation of Israel, after proving that the Lord of Israel is truly God, after cleansing Israel of the prophets of Baal, he found himself on the receiving end of threats from that wicked and evil queen Jezebel. And this same Elijah, who one minute stood boldly and powerfully for the Lord, was at the next minute doubting God's care, doubting God's protection, as he fled to a cave and asked the Lord to just take his life already. In 1 Kings chapter 19, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life. And he continued in his doubt, of the Lord's power to sustain his prophets and to sustain his people in First 1 Kings 19.10, saying this, because he believed he was the only righteous person left. God, you did not have the power to sustain your righteous people. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left And they even seek my life to take it away. However, the Lord would soon reveal to Elijah that his doubts were in fact incorrect. Because the Lord had, in his sovereign power, sustained 7,000 people in Israel that were his own people. He says in 1 Kings 19.8, the Lord said, All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him, I have sustained them. So Sometimes what we expect from the Lord is not how the Lord works, and that leads to doubting. And in just a few chapters uh, in Matthew, we'll look at it, I don't know, sometime in the future, we will see Peter. You know Peter. Sometimes the impulsive, sometimes bold disciple seeing Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a tremendous storm at sea. And Peter, in a moment of great faith, calls out to the Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water. And as Peter walked out on the water towards the Lord, as Jesus himself stood firmly atop of the water, Peter felt the wind whipping around and he saw the waves crashing down and his faith dissipated. His faith shrunk and he, began, he grew uncertain and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand, took hold of Peter and said, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Do you see it? Doubt, little faith. Not no faith. Peter sunk in the water, but Jesus didn't say he was an unbeliever. He said, You have little faith. And what's interesting about this narrative is that where is jesus at this moment he hasn't moved he hasn't sunk he hasn't nothing's happened to him he is still standing there on the top of the water rock solid and yet peter lacked certainty in him if it can happen to peter and john the baptist and elijah and jeremiah and moses and abraham it can happen to you it can happen to me Jesus had mercy on those who doubted. And if that's you this morning, if you're stuck in a season of doubt, I want you to know that Jesus, in the same way he did for Peter, has a storehouse of mercy for you. And it's not just in Scripture, but it's also throughout history. And I'm just going to choose one man, one man that I respect immensely, one of the most respected figures in Christian history, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this in one of his sermons entitled, Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness. Quote, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It's quite time for us to begin to say, ah, you poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as if to even say it's too good to be true. The idea here being that every, this, this, this doubt that Charles Spurgeon is talking about here is doubt in your own salvation. Right? And we go through those seasons, right? Am I really saved? And he says, if somebody comes to him and says, I never doubt my salvation, he said, it's time for us to doubt him because the more you know yourself, and the wickedness in your own heart. The more you know the glories of your Savior, it leads you to the place where you might say to yourself, it's just too good to be true. And here's the reality, it is. But at the same time, it is true. Many of us will doubt because we know ourselves well, and because we know that Christ is great, and wonder how he could ever love someone like me. And this is something that Spurgeon candidly revealed to those around him about his own spiritual life when he said, and I quote again, "...I must confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit, which I trust and hope that none of you are called to suffer, and at such times I have doubted my interest," meaning my share or my inheritance, "...in Christ." I've doubted my calling, my election, my perseverance, my Savior's blood, and my Father's love. Spurgeon's doubt consisted of of his uncertainty of God's love for him and doubting his own salvation at times. Now, that's a doubt that I think many of us can, can relate to. And again... Preaching from Psalm sixty-nine, fourteen, which says, "Deliver me from sinking in the mire; let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters," Spurgeon said in a rather self-reflective word. Listen to this: Some of us have preached, and I quote, "Some of us have preached the word for years, and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible." and have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Now I quote Spurgeon here because he is such a towering and respected figure in Christian history, because his sermons are still quoted and admired by a people today. And if all these men in the Bible and all these men throughout Christian history can be experiencing such doubts, where did we ever get this idea that Christians have it all together and they can never talk about it. Spurgeon is remembered as the prince of preachers, a man who fought numerous battles on many fronts for the purity of the gospel, and here he is speaking openly in his books and in his sermons and in his lectures about the fits of doubt that he himself fought. But oh how times have changed, right? Right? For some reason, in our own day, doubts and difficulties in our faith have become some sort of taboo subject. They're, it's kind of off limits to talk about it. And if you have a doubt, sometimes you might feel like it's just a little too uncomfortable to admit it. It's not something I want to raise at the dinner table, it's not some conversation I want to engage in with my fellow believers, because I want them to think I have it all together. But listen, no one has it all together. You don't have it all together. I don't have it all together. You are messed up. I am messed up. We all need Christ desperately because we are a bunch of mess-ups. Maybe you think it's only weak Christians that go through seasons of doubt. Charles Spurgeon was no weak Christian. John the Baptist was no weak man as we will see next week. Doubt has plagued and not at the big dogs of faith as well. You see, this idea of people having it all together in our day, this has been growing exponentially over the last little while because of that, and you know I always say it, that stinking scourge in human communication, which is social media. It's a part of the social media age. Sometimes I watch videos on YouTube where they show what the actual picture someone took is and then how they filtered it and and changed it all so that they look way better than what it was it's not reality in a world where we select the right pictures in the world where we fudge and shape everything around so that we put our best pictures forward in a world where we make up stories and we tell outright lies so that we can look good and in a world where everything that everyone else posts on Facebook makes them look like they have it all together what hope is there for us? who know ourselves well enough to know that we don't have it all together. Sometimes you might think, I'm the only one who has these doubts. And then you become accustomed to battling through them on your own, to suppressing them. And this is one of the consistent lines I hear as I read story upon story this week of people who have decided to walk away from the faith altogether. The repeated refrain that stretched through every one of those stories was the feeling of, I just wasn't allowed to speak about my doubts. I wasn't allowed to ask the questions that I have been pondering. Now listen, What a successful tactic this has been for the enemy. To make you think that your doubts and your questions have no place. Like you are the only one who is dealing with them. Spoiler alert, you're not. That you must keep everything quiet. You most likely have a lot of questions that other people are asking too. But nobody will ask them. It's Satan himself who's brought on this odd, non-biblical place where we think that we have to hide our doubts and hide our uncertainties because it makes us some sort of lesser believer. If you are in a period of doubt, pressed by questions that you can't figure out or understand, then listen, reach out to a fellow believer. I guarantee you, I I, I, I will encourage you and exhort you that they will most definitely sit and talk with you. And say, you know what, I have those questions too. Now, I don't guarantee you that they'll have all the answers you're looking for, but if they don't, that's okay. Thank them for their time and move on to another person who may have the answers to the questions you're looking for. But don't stop. Don't believe the lie that you aren't supposed to express your doubts because it's when you suppress them and start thinking that the church somehow discourages me from the search for truth, that leads to more doubt and more discouragement and despair. It might even lead to a renunciation of your profession of faith. And that is entering into rebellion against Christ. Seek clarity, seek understanding. And listen if someone can't answer your questions, that does not mean that there are not answers out there. However, if you truly are on a search for certainty in your faith, be prepared to hear and accept. Be prepared to believe the answers when you get them, even if they aren't what you hope to hear. One theologian said this, Doubting God is painful and frightening because we think we are leaving God behind. But we are only leaving behind the idea of God that we like to surround ourselves with. The small God the God we control, the God who agrees with us. Doubt forces us to look at who we actually think God is and then to come to correct conclusions about his person and his character. That's what's happening with John. Introduction over. That's what's happening to John. Let's focus a little bit on John the Baptist. He is one whose doubts arose from a mistaken assumption about who Christ is is. After Jesus had just finished setting down the authoritative instructions to his disciples in uh, chapter 10, he sent them out. The text doesn't actually say it in, uh, in, our, in this morning. It doesn't say that he actually sent them out, but we can uh, surmise that Jesus sent out the disciples, and then he went on a, a preaching um, circuit himself. You read that in verse 1. When Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So Jesus went on and the idea being that we can assume that the disciples went in the opposite direction in obedience. And as Jesus went about preaching and teaching, we are told in in verse 2 that John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. You see that? John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. Now that's an important detail. I want you to notice when the questions of doubt for John arose. They arose when he heard about the deeds of Christ while he was in prison. Now, a few things to note. This is John, the preacher who lived in the wilderness. He lived in the wilderness his whole life, moving about as he willed, preaching the good news to everyone he could, breathing in and enjoying the fresh outdoor air, sleeping every night, under the starlit eastern sky, and now here he is, arrested by that cruel, weak minded puppet king Herod. And now, instead of the freedom that he's always enjoyed for his whole life, he languishes in some dark and dank and moist and humid, most likely rat infested dungeon cell in Herod's palace compound. And from that cell, he hears about what Jesus is doing. He hears about the deeds of Jesus. Now, what are the deeds of Jesus that John hears about? Jesus is eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is expressing disregard for expected religious practices that John hopes that his disciples might do as well. Fasting, for example. Jesus actually seemed quite gracious in, in, as he's going about and ministering to the peoples. Now, we, uh, from our perspective, we know this. We've been told about the grace of our Lord Jesus, and it's something we thoroughly appreciate. But for John, this is not what John had expected. This is not what the majority of those who had eagerly awaited Messiah expected. And you can hear it in John's preaching, can't you? Listen to, listen to what John had preached earlier on in the book of Matthew. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Or, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and... I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Can you, from those texts, get a sense of what John was expecting from Jesus? An immediate judgment of the wicked. John had been preaching about the fiery retribution that would fall upon the wicked at the arrival of Messiah. And now that Jesus has arrived and John has borne witness to him, John believed that the time is at hand. It's time for the faithful to be rewarded and the evildoers to be punished. John and the Jewish peoples were waiting for Messiah to arrive and to clear out the Roman pagans who had ruled over them for far too long. They were waiting for Messiah who would set up shop as king over them and rule over a free and prosperous and liberated Israel. They were waiting for a Messiah who would fulfill what was spoken in Psalm 2, a Messiah who would rule all the nations of the world from Israel with a rod of iron. And yet, the report that John gets in prison is nothing like that. And the deeds of Christ do not seem to line up with his expectations at all. Jesus had not worked against or agitated for the overthrow of the Roman government. He hadn't judged corruption and rebellion amongst the religious elites. And everywhere you looked, you still saw injustice and corruption and wickedness reigning supreme. If you think about it, really, aside from Jesus healing a few people in the backwoods of Galilee and preaching a sermon, nothing has really changed. This was not supposed to be the case. Jesus actually, after feeding the 5,000, when the people came to him and tried to force him to take on the mantle of king over Israel, refused, he flat out refused to accept it. And not only that, but opposition to Jesus was on the rise. The religious leaders in chapter nine even went so far as to call Jesus a blasphemer and criticized him for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And during this time, John remains in prison. Israel was suppo- in John's mind, Israel's supposed to love the Messiah when he came. They're supposed to line up behind him, and everything is supposed to be set right. And John is one of the righteous ones who ought to be rewarded at the coming of Messiah. And yet, here he is sitting in a prison cell. And all of this shakes John's confidence. All of this causes John to doubt the certainty of the identity of Christ. If I am the one who is to go before Messiah and announce his appearing, and you are that Messiah, then why am I in prison? And here's the thing. John wasn't necessarily wrong in his expectation or in his preaching. But his information was incomplete. He lacked all of the information. And so, like we do at times, John required some reassurance. John required some clarity about everything he was experiencing because it all ran so contrary to his expectations. See, the information that John wasn't clear about is this. The Messiah will come to earth twice. The Messiah will come to earth twice. Once to seek and save the lost, and then again at a later point, one that we are today still awaiting to establish his millennial kingdom. And it is then, at this second coming, that John the Baptist, everything John the Baptist had been expecting, will come to pass. You see, in essence, John was mixing up the comings of Christ. The Apostle John tells us in the Gospel why Jesus came the first time. In John chapter 3, verse 17, he said this, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you see, God the Father didn't send Jesus the first time into the world to condemn the world because the world already stood, already stands condemned. God sent his Son into the world so that he might announce and proclaim to the world both the problem and the solution to the problem. Believe in him. Turn to him in faith. Jesus came this first time to live the perfect life that we all require if we are going to be acceptable to God. He came to die the atoning death that we require for our sin to be dealt with justly. And by turning to Jesus in faith, His perfect righteousness, secured by His sinless life, is applied to your account while your sin is taken upon His shoulders where He paid the penalty for it at the cross. At this first coming, God gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but instead have eternal life. But John, wasting away in prison, was not expecting any of that. He had assumed that when Messiah arrived, he would initiate the program immediately of judging sin, not dying to pay its penalty. John assumed that the Messiah would immediately usher in this earthly kingdom of peace and prosperity and liberty to Israel. But the popular expectations of and for Messiah's arrival turned out to be as confused as the timing. There is, to be sure, a day coming when Jesus will return and he will fulfill the words of Psalm 2. The nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possession. He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Because of all of this confusion in John's mind, however, he sent word to Jesus asking, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another and John asked this question as his life of service to the Lord and his unfulfilled expectations of Messiah looms large for him while he sits in prison. And Jesus is our most gracious and merciful Lord. Listen, look at how Jesus responded to Jesus or to John. He didn't chide John. He didn't call everyone, Hey, everybody, get a, get a load of the old doubting Baptist over here. Jesus answered the question, and as we will see next week, he proceeded to speak very highly of John. And so Jesus ordered John's disciples to go back and tell him what they hear and see. Look at verse 5 again. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus sets before the disciples here messianic signs that are drawn from a number of places in Isaiah. I, Isaiah 26, verse 19, for example, we read this. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Or we read in Isaiah 29. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel." And also chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man de- leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now, right after all of these verses, Jesus tells, these verses, tells John these things because John was focusing on the verses after these things to the exclusion or at the expense of these things. You see, right after these prophetic words of joy that you read in Isaiah there comes prophetic words of judgment. So for example, in Isaiah twenty six nineteen, which we just read, the very next verses, 20 and 21, say this, Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. John focused on that part, which is why Jesus had to remind him of the other section. In Isaiah 29, 18 and 19, when we read that the deaf will hear and the blind will see, the very next verse says this, The ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who do evil shall be cut off. See, these were the words of vengeance that John was focused on. And so Jesus tells John here, there are other signs to Messiah's arrival also. Blind receiving their sight, lame walking, lepers being cleansed, deaf hearing, dead raised up, the poor in spirit hearing the good news preached to them. John, these are the times of Messiah. It might not be what you were expecting, but that's because you weren't looking at all of the information. And John, Jesus made it clear also when, it came, when he came to Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolled the scroll to the place where Isaiah chapter 61 is and he read it and this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after reading that snippet of Isaiah, Jesus folded up the scroll, rolled up the scroll and said, In the hearing of everyone, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now it's very important to note where Jesus ended there. As he read Isaiah 61, when he rolled up the scroll and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, the very next line in that text is, And the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus had not come at his first coming to proclaim the day of vengeance. That day is still to come. But John had assumed that in Christ the day of vengeance had arrived. And Jesus clarifies for him, no, it has not. This is the year where we proclaim the Lord's favor. Jesus came to proclaim the good news, to tell the world that God so loves the world. And Isaiah 61 also forms the backdrop for the words that Jesus sent back to John. And pay close attention again to where Jesus ends his statement. He says, Jesus came to bring good news to the poor in spirit, or as he said to John, the poor have good news preached to them. That phrase comes right out of Isaiah 61. And the very next phrase in Isaiah 61 when he sends the message back to John is this. uh, To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus sends the messengers of John back to John with the good news is being proclaimed to the poor but doesn't tell him the next line which is the opening of the prison to those who are bound. In other words, Jesus tells John, the day of the Lord's vengeance has not arrived, John. And you, my righteous servant, will remain in prison because of your service at two and faith in the Lord. And I want you to know, John, that this is all part of the plan. The promise of opening the prison to those who are bound, this will occur in the future at the second coming, along with the judgment of the wicked, the dealing with evildoers, and the cutting off of the rebellious. And note that after the disciples of John bring this message back to him, we don't hear any more from John. The words of Christ seem to have been enough to satisfy him. Now, if a man of John's stature can suffer doubts, bouts of doubt under the pressures he faced, in the light of unfulfilled expectation, who's to say that we will not also? You might think that you're strong. You might think, I am a rock. Nothing can get to me. But know this, water, water, if it drips on a rock long enough, will shatter that rock to pieces. And you and I live in a world of relentless dripping. And we can experience breaking points in our own lives as well. And when that comes, learn from John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't hide anything. He had a question, and he asked it plainly. Jesus, things aren't lining up for me here. I'm expecting judgment and recompense and the cutting off of evildoers, and you are gracious, merciful, and eating with tax collectors and sinners. What gives? That was John's question, but what's yours? Whatever it is, don't be ashamed to search for answers, to ask around, to find people, books, authors, scriptures, not Google. Whatever it is you need to help you in your time of uncertainty, don't let your seasons of doubt cause you to be offended by Jesus. That's what Jesus said next, right? In verse 6, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Meaning, blessed is the one who is not appalled by, or disgusted by, or revolted by me. Blessed is the one who is not stumbling over me as I am. If there is going to be any rebuke to John, this is, this is the... By Jesus, this is the extent of it. John, don't be swayed by the world's rejection of Messiah. Don't stumble or get offended by the aspects of my work and my person that don't align with or fit into your preconceptions. And to each of you wondering about Jesus and asking any number of questions about him, my encouragement to you is to remain faithful to him no matter what comes in your seasons of doubt and in your seasons of uncertainty, when things aren't going as expected and if, it, if and when it turns out that something you believe or something you practice is condemned as sinful by Jesus or when your hearts conflict with the clear teachings of God's word or when you don't have all of the answers that you're looking for, cling to Jesus. Cry out to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Look to your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord and ask. And if you find yourself in prison, for example, like John, stay faithful. Because even in our doubts, Jesus is Lord. Even in our doubts, Jesus is the Christ. Even in our doubts, Jesus is Savior. And so in closing, the great Anglican minister, J.C. Ryle, encouraged his flock with these words. Doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, our Lord is ready to help us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the example of John the Baptist. I thank you and I praise you that you put and address the frailties and weaknesses of our humanity in Scripture that you let us know that even the best of us are simply just humans. And while we might think we're the only ones going through certain things, you know, Lord, and you tell us in your word that if we're going through something, if we know our own hearts well enough, we know everybody's hearts. Because we're all very similar. So, Lord, I pray right now for people who are struggling with doubt And I pray that you would give them courage to speak those doubts, a doggedness to search for answers, to ask anyone they can, to look at anything they can to get what they need. And I pray that when the answers come, that those answers, even if they don't like them, they would appreciate them and accept them and cling to you. We praise you and we thank you and we honor you and we believe and we ask that you would help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.